who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your, Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Sure is. Oh, man. And boy, do we have a doozy for you this week. We do. I've got to say, though, this is a story that I'm sure both of us have heard before. Yes. It's been covered on many different pro- podcasts, especially a lot of true crime podcasts. Wow, I can't speak. I got to get my so shit good. together. <laughs> um, but it's a story that I think is relatively well known. But I think at first it would be questioned as to why it's a feminist topic. And I think that once we start discussing the people that worked in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and things like that, we begin to see um, why this would be considered a feminist discussion. Yeah. um, I mean, and beyond even that, I feel like when you're tackling issues of classism, Mm -hmm. which you see a lot of here. And labor. And labor, uh, which you see a lot of here. I think that these are very important subjects in general, but specifically for the feminist movement. Yeah. Um, And I think that they're important topics politically to be discussing now because like we here in LA, maybe in other places, you're not as familiar with what's going on with like IATSE, which is a like labor strike that's happening within the film industry right now. Yeah. And we are still dealing with a lot of these issues, not in the same way, obviously, as we're going to get into with right. This they're story, evolving but- and changing, but there are still issues in labor in the United States, as I'm sure in other countries as right. well. Yeah. And these are um, dealing with issues of like, capitalism right so we're going to see the same kind of thing come up over and over again like there are things that amazon employees have brought up that have like echoes of this right like just being worked did you ever watch the john oliver uh clip about all the amazon oh my gosh everybody go on youtube and look up john oliver discussing the 
the environment for the workers of Amazon. Oh, it's oh, I know it's horrible. It is I've horrible. But watching articles. it all and like in one on the John Oliver episode like a couple years ago was like right. mind boggling. Yeah. It and was insane. You put it at contrast, like what those workers and listen, I'm not trying to say I'm better than anyone else. I still have an Amazon account that I use. Oh, right? for real. So yeah. It's, it's not as though like uh, I'm trying to be on my like high and mighty soapbox necessarily about this. However, those things do come at a cost, right? Like the, the reason you can get something the next day or in two days uh, is because somebody is working to do that. Yeah, and, so and not see, getting bathroom breaks. Right, and so to see like what those workers are being put through and then to see what they're getting paid and then to see how much money Jeff Bezos has made during the pandemic, right? You know, those all of those issues are the same kinds of issues that were happening here, like at this time. You yes, know? definitely. So I want to say just before we get started, what my sources are for this episode. Um, I got a lot of my information from a history.com article, mm-hmm. um, a, a Smithsonian mag article. There is a video on YouTube called Triangle Remembering the Fire. Mm-hmm. And then there is an American Experience PBS episode, which I they're love always American good. Experience. They're yeah. always good. They are I so good. did not write all of my sources on my notes, so I can't tell you. But I did read that history.com article, and then I also found some really, really great, um, like old, old, old articles talking about the trial and talking about some specific people that were involved. And then I also did a lot of reading from a PBS website about the two owners mm-hmm. of the Triangle Shirtwaist mm-hmm. Company. So I'm really excited to get into it. I think first and foremost, let's talk about what happened and then go from there. So on March 25th, 1911, in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city and one of the deadliest days in U.S. history occurred. The fire in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory caused the deaths of 146 garment workers, 123 of which were women and 23 were men. Most of the victims were recent Italian or Jewish immigrants between the ages of 14 to 23. Yeah, uh, it's it's truly devastating. So let's talk a little bit about what the Triangle Waste Company. Let's talk was. about what the fuck is shirt waste because right. that was one thing that I think that most people wouldn't know. So I looked it up, and this is what it said: Styled after menswear, shirt waists were looser and more liberating than Victorian style bodices, and were becoming more popular in the female workers of New York City in the early 1900s. Right. So if you've ever seen any pictures of like Gibson girls, right? Yeah. There was a um, pretty prominent, maybe not as prominent to us, but a pretty prominent at the time shift in fashion uh, going into like the Edwardian era. Out of the Victorian era, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the Victorian era and into the Edwardian era where you where women didn't necessarily have to wear full dresses. So it was like skirts, still a ton of layers, definitely like bustles and corsets and all that stuff. But it was seen as kind of this liberating thing. Because Because it was like the two pieces. It wasn't one dress. Right. Yeah. So the top was considered the shirt waist, the top portion of it. So the Triangle Waste Company factory was built in 1901, and it was owned by two men, uh, Max Blank and Isaac Harris. And it was um, located in the top three floors of the Ash Building in Manhattan. Yeah. The Ash Building was actually considered to be a skyscraper at the time, even though it was only 10 
stories. So yeah, nowadays- and what's funny is there were buildings that were taller yes. because as we talk about the rescues and things like that, but that is wild to think about that a 10-story building would be considered a skyscraper. Still very tall, yeah. And yeah. so for a lot of these workers, like working in a building like this, it was kind of a fancier version of other other factories. Um also, it should be said that the shirtwaist was considered like kind of a feminist symbol. A lot of um, suffragettes you'll see wearing this because shirt it waist. was a more like liberated version of the dress that they would normally right. wear. I can totally see where yeah. that would be kind of like the more progressive outfit for the woman of the early 1900s. Yeah, and this is also a time when we're starting to see trends um, become like popular among the working class as well. Because I think what while there's always been trends, right, that have always like trickled down, um, in past centuries, it would be like the uber wealthy could maintain these like ever-changing trends. Right, but like the folks like you and I wouldn't right. be able to keep up with things like that because we didn't have the money. Right, but yeah. with the birth of... Um, factories, sweatshops, essentially. I was going to say, this is kind of the birth of like fast fashion, boo fast fashion. Yeah, kind of. But um, yeah, and I mean, we talk, I'm going to talk about that a little bit because I do want to talk about Max Blank. I always wanted to call him Blanc, like Matt LeBlanc, but Max Blanc. Yeah. So I'm sorry if I call him Blanc. Is it Blank? It's Blank. It's Blank? Okay. Max Blank and Isaac Harris. So both men were born in Russia and immigrated to the United States in the early 1890s. And like many other Jewish immigrants at the time, they both began working in the garment industry. The men eventually joined together to form a partnership, propelling them to earn the nickname New York's Shirtwaist Kings. Q, King of New York from the Newsies. Um, (laughs) In 1900, they founded the Triangle Waste Company and opened shop. And in 1902, moved their business to the 8th and 9th floors of the Ash Building. And then later on, they would get the 10th floor as their business was doing better because they really made a ton of money. And these men lived absolutely lavish lifestyles. They went from living in cramped New York City apartments to brownstones on the Upper West Side that overlooked the Hudson River. Harris had four servants. Blank had four. Five. By the end of the decade, they would show up to work in chauffeured cars and they had expanded businesses in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. I mean, and the demand for these shirts, I feel like I can't overstate like the popularity of these shirtwaists and the demand for them was extremely high. So, um, you know, supply and demand, it became very competitive. Yeah. And so you basically had to have sweatshops in place in order to keep up and make a profit. Right. Like that's what you had to do. So people were working in pretty deplorable conditions. And by contrast to some of the other sweatshop factories in Manhattan at the time, the Triangle Company was considered to be a step up from that. Now, that is not saying very much. Yeah. <laughs> because the other factories were absolutely unlivable. Like, yeah. they're completely deplorable in conditions. Very exploitative. All of this was incredibly exploitative. Yeah. So these women, as you said, who were mostly immigrants um, of Jewish and Italian ancestry, most of them didn't speak English. They would often work between nine and 12 hours a day on weekdays. And about 52 hours a week. Yes. And so they would also come in on Saturday as well. Yeah. So it seems like they got Sunday off, but they would work on Saturday. They would work like six days a week, 12 hours a day. Yeah. And they would make about $7 um, a week. Which, which is equivalent to about $191 a today. Week, a in week. 2018. Yeah. Imagine. Which is, or it would be, so what I what I read was that it was either between like seven to 12 hours a week. Which dollars. Would be a, dollars a week. Is that what I said? No, you said hours. Oh, but. sorry. Seven to 12 
$1,000 a week. Yes. And that is the equivalent to either $191 to $327 a week in 2018, or it would be $3.67 to $6.29 an hour. And that in today's money, <laughs> in today's money. So, and that higher pay, that $12, I believe that that is something that happened as a result of strikes yes that happened later on so the standard um previous to that was seven dollars a week and yes of course we're talking about the early 1900s seven dollars it is equivalent to 191 dollars but for the hours that these women were working and in the conditions they were working to make 191 dollars yeah to to try and help support your family it's nothing like yeah it's and the working conditions really were absolutely horrible. The lights were kept dim, the doors were kept locked during business hours. One, to keep the women at the machines, and two, because Blank and Harris were super paranoid that the women would be stealing from them. Right. So they wanted to keep the doors locked while the women were working. Right. They kept and one exit open so that they could station someone at the exit to, to check, like check handbags yeah. as people left. Like, what were they going to... Scra- scraps? Yeah. Scraps of, of shirt, of shirt waste. waste. Yeah, like, exactly. You know? To make it at home so they can have their own for free. I don't know. Um, and then also the, the factory had had two fires previously and the owners still didn't put in a sprinkler system. And they do believe that these first couple of fires were set on purpose to get insurance money because it was never when business hours were operating. Right. It was always like right before open and things like yeah, that. Yeah, And there's so, also a lot of speculation that that's why they didn't put in a sprinkler system. So these yeah. people had the money to be able to, you know, have all of these safety protocols in, in place. They had more money than they knew what to do right. with. Yeah. But one, people like this, they, you know, we've had this conversation about billionaires nowadays where I just feel like if you have that amount of money, you it's corporate greed to a level that like I can't understand you start hoarding it and keeping it right don't give any of it away yeah but also there is speculation that they intentionally did not put in a sprinkler system or shore up um, things within their factories to prevent fires because they figured if it burns down we'll we'll get the insurance money yeah we'll just get more rich right so also there were four elevators with access to the factory floors but only one of them was fully operational and workers had to file down a long narrow hallway to get to it so like that's totally not safe there were two stairways down to the street but one of them was locked from the outside as mentioned before the door to the outside also opened inward (laughs) which makes things really difficult not great for a quick escape no, and the, the fire escape was so narrow that it would have taken hours for all the workers to use it, even in the best of circumstances. Right. And like we said, all of these dangers were well known to the owners, but there was a lot of corruption in both the garment industry and in the city government, as well as them wanting to keep all of their money so that because there was so much competition going on, they right. had to remain the kings of the shirtwaist companies. You know what I mean? Like they had to stay on top against all of these other places that were making the same thing they Mm -hmm. were. So they had to be okay with spending less money on making it a safe and comfortable working environment and more money on product and things like that. Right. I mean, and this was also a time when there was very, very little government oversight. The government kind of allowed businesses. I mean, it was to like run themselves capitalism, right? Like the government was like, we're not going to interfere. And so because of this, there was 
was no standard minimum wage. That was something that wouldn't come until 1938. Yeah. I mean, um, that doesn't surprise me, though. Yeah. So factory owners could basically pay whatever they wanted. And yeah. they would oftentimes cut corners as much as possible so that they could return as high a profit as possible. They didn't have any workers' compensation. So with factories becoming more and more prominent, I mean... And with no safety protocols in place, people were getting hurt and dying. They're often. very, very, very dangerous working environments. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what would happen is like if you got injured, which was very likely at a job um, in a factory, if you got injured, they would just fire you. And yeah. then you're just kind of like shit out of luck. You're done. You can't feed your family. You know, there is no kind of like. And then you're injured or you're hurt or dead um did by the way did you ever read the book series dear america as a kid oh my god yes oh i knew i knew you would i had so many i have like all of them i think my mom has like all of my dear america books that my mom got rid of them but there was one my favorite one was about this irish immigrant woman and she worked in a factory where it was like some sort of machine that you would like feed things into. Uh-huh. And it was really fast and dangerous. But I remember my mom reading it to me like before bed one night. And there was this one part where like she's working with this girl next to her who refused to tie her hair back because she was like really vain oh, about no. it. And she got her hair stuck in the machinery and she was girl. scalped. Oh, girl. And that's what I learned what scalping was. Oh, sorry. Just like us talking about the working conditions just like brought all that back to me and I had to let it no, out. I mean, genuinely, like I feel like we cannot even comprehend like there is no minimum wage there is no workers compensation there are very very few child labor laws and it is the most dangerous working environments because they actually don't give two shits they don't care i mean it is again it is capitalism to a degree that like we we have some idea of right like whenever i i will say this like your job most likely if you work especially in corporate america doesn't give a shit about you Hmm. like they can give you as many like tote bags and free mugs and pens with the company name on them as they want but the truth is if anything were to actually happen to you they would replace you instantly yeah and this is that to the one billionth degree well yes because these do not care these people weren't even seen as fully formed humans and i think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that a lot of these young women and people that were working there were also immigrants and very new to America and didn't speak English and all these other things where I feel like that's another way for people to take advantage of those workers as well. Absolutely. And it's why, you know, to this day, I really try, um, I don't try, I avoid using the term unskilled labor for anything because I feel like that- Everything takes fucking skill. Everything does, first of all. And a lot of these jobs are jobs that you don't want to do. Yeah. um, Everything does take skill skill first of all secondly i believe in my heart that that phrase was coined specifically to dehumanize people yes to be able to say they're not valuable because they are unskilled this job is an unskilled job right you know and it is i'm sorry but you have to be very skilled to sew shirt waist i'm just saying I'm i call it, it right now I, I have a sewing machine and it, if you told me to sew a shirt waist right now i'd be like me uh okay so around this time 
there was a small movement that was later labeled industrial feminism. Yeah. And I think that that is, you know, a big reason why we wanted to talk about this. That's kind of what you were alluding to earlier. Right. uh, Talking about the women who were involved and worked in these factories. So it basically was a working class counterpoint to the suffragette movement at the time. So we've talked many times about first wave feminism and how the prominent voices of the first wave were often well-to-do upper class white women. Yeah. Um, And many of those involved in industrial feminism were lower class immigrants. Now, this movement does also appear to have excluded a lot of women of color as well. Yeah. They were focused more specifically on um, a lot of the women who were working in these factories at the time. And as we've said, it was majority Italian and Jewish yeah, immigrants. It, right. So they sought to unionize and they fought for safer working conditions and higher wages. So there was the International Garment Workers Union, and it led strikes a bunch during this time. Yeah. One of the most prominent ones was in 1909. There were upwards of 20,000 women, primarily Jewish women, mm-hmm. working in shirtwaist factories. They gathered to strike and demand better working conditions. It was the largest strike by female American workers to that date, and it actually started at the Triangle Factory mm-hmm. and later became known as the Uprising of Twenty Thousand. Because that's it's in, you know that's a Huge. massive yeah. number of people, and they were so tenacious. Like they were going up against these like very wealthy titans of business who did everything in their power, especially um, Harris and Blank. They were some of the most like because a lot of the other factory owners who had smaller factories, they folded right away. They were like, listen, we need we you need back workers, at work. Yeah. So we'll give you what you want. Just like come back to work, which should tell you power to the people. OK, exactly. The worker has power. But Blank and Harris had enough money and power and influence to kind of just like fight this. And not even that. They were actually hiring people yes. like policemen. And I hate this word, but quote unquote thugs to go after people and like like, actual mobsters yeah yeah yeah. but I just like I hate that word and that was just the word that was always used in the literature but like let's call them mobsters let's call them criminals let's call them something else Um, to go goons oh they would send their goons after the girls that's totally what they did and they would have these like they would have them beaten up they would have them imprisoned kidnapped taken like these horrible horrible lengths they took to ruin the lives of their employees right I mean and so bad one of uh, these women she was arrested and she actually had like three of her ribs broken Mm. by police like in custody well because they had the political power they had the the governing powers behind them in order to get away with anything they were to do right yeah absolutely and And despite this, though, the women kept showing up like that woman who had her ribs broken. Mm -hmm. She went right back out and joined the strike as soon as she was. Was that Rose Rosenfeld? It it was Clara something. But Rose Rosenfeld was another big one. She's a very famous um, survivor of the fire. And I I mentioned her a few times throughout my notes. I may or may not actually mention her. But she is there's a lot of information about her because she was so active in that movement until she died. Right. I mean, it actually kind of, for the people of Manhattan, it kind of like warmed their hearts to these women. Yeah. Because they wouldn't give up. Yeah. And like, so they started getting a lot of press and stuff like that. Right. Uh, And people started to kind of like take notice. Right. You know, we're starting to put like a face to this movement. Yeah. So eventually, Blank and Harris did 
raise the wages and they did like claim to make some changes inside the factories but i don't remember reading that there were any changes yeah Yeah. exactly like they said they were going to but the wages did change the hours changed ever so slightly to make sure these women weren't just like living in the factory all the time right but they also only did that because it was coming up on like the holidays and they yeah. were like all right well we need to shut we need to sell these shirt waists, so we need to get these women back in yeah it wasn't from the kindness of their hearts no, you know no what I, mean? They, it was- I mean they did realize like okay the workers have some power because yeah like the machine stops like yeah. if the workers stop the machine stops and then there's no shirt waist. and they couldn't go any longer because they needed to you know how are they gonna pay their however many employees how are they gonna pay their chauffeur Right. And all of their servants and everything like that. My goodness. So that was everything that's kind of like leading up to how this fire would come to be. It really was a perfect storm of just pure crap that would lead to this fire. Right. So as a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com realm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash realm during women's history month come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast thread the needle i'm your host donna shill i'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today listen to thread the needle wherever you get your podcasts and we don't know what started the fire so it was at the end of the workday on that Saturday, March Yeah, it was 25th. like, they were all like packing up to go. It was like 4.40, end of the day. Right. And so there's time. some there's some speculation regarding how the fire started. A lot of people assume because it started in a like scrap bin, yeah. a like, rag bin, that somebody maybe had like lit a match for a cigarette or had like thrown a cigarette butt into that. It yeah. was forbidden to smoke well, on the premises. This is the thing. But then they interviewed the people that survived and they were like, but everybody we still smoked. did it. Yeah, everybody smoked. Yeah. Everybody, you know what I mean? Because there was no way fucking out if you and everybody smoked cigarettes back then. So of course they're going to be sewing at their machines. To me, that seems like the, the most, most likely. likely. Yeah. The other the other possibility is that a spark from the sewing machine because yeah. um, 
those machines were not <laughs> super, up to par. Super safe. I mean, and it was like 1911. So it's like, how great can this machine be? You know, right, everything yeah. was dangerous in 1911. That's very true. I feel like it probably was someone that so thought a cigarette was out and it caught the... Right. scraps of material yeah. and went off but yeah everybody was kind of like closing up for the day and finishing up as a fire flared up in a scrap bin as we said under one of the cutters tables on the eighth floor and so Harris and Blank were actually at the factory that day and they had brought their daughters with them it was like bring your daughter to work day apparently Luckily for the daughters, because I don't really care about Harrison Blank, uh, they were alerted pretty much right away that there was a fire by phone and they escaped climbing over neighboring rooftops and escaping out the window, Right, which Rose Rosenfeld was a smart little gal because she looked to the company's executives when everybody was like running and going crazy. She's like, I'm going to follow them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You follow the rich people because they don't care about you yeah. at all. Uh, but what happened was like, so the fire broke out on the eighth floor Yeah, and they had a system in place like an internal switchboard system so someone on the 8th floor maybe because they knew uh, that the owners were on the 10th floor they called the 10th floor and they let them know yeah so but they didn't let the ninth floor know right. <laughs> yeah so them along with like 60 to 80 people made it to the roof mm-hmm. um, but the ninth floor did not know what was going on and there were no it wasn't th- until there was like smoke in the room right. that they were like oh fuck right like they literally said we didn't know the fire was here until we saw the fire so that was there were about 300 workers who were on the ninth floor Mm. so um despite the fact that the building like you said had those four elevators there was only one that was fully operational at the time and you could fit one person in there yeah i mean it was like it was like a tiny one a few but yeah it wasn't very many it was it was probably like meant for one but you could fit more in there but i think it was like one of those freight elevators where it's like yeah, not fully like normally operated. So know? the elevator workers, bless them, yeah. went up and down in that one elevator as many times as they could, trying to get the women out. Yeah. But after having gone up and down only three times, the cable stopped working, and they yeah. weren't able to go back up again. And what's terrifying is that there were women that were like jumping down the yes. elevator shaft and stuff, yeah. and getting stuck, and weren't being like found. There was one woman that was found like at the bottom of an elevator shaft, like three days later. Yeah. You or know? they tried to climb the cables um, yep. in the elevator shaft to try yep. and get down. Uh, it was not successful at all. And the most devastating thing that people tried to do was this, to escape was jump out the buildings. Right. So like you said, there's the elevators that aren't working. There's only really one stairwell that's usable because the other stairwells, the other stairwells are uh, locked and the fire escape is too narrow. They also had a water hose in the building. However, it was rotted out yeah. and the um, valve didn't work. Yeah, so, so they were using like pails to try to like right. douse water. That's not never going to work. You so know? people were absolutely panicking. Yes. And it's it's kind of amazing that the people on the roof made it because like that's the last thing you want to do is typically in a fire is go up but luckily for them they were right next to an NYU building yeah and and it was professor like was teaching his class and was like holy shit there's like 50 people on top of a building or whatever how many people it was and there was a ladder billowing you know yeah but there was like luckily there was like painters in the NYU building that day so they just like grabbed a ladder and they put it out the window and let people start climbing up it yeah and every single person um survived 
on the roof. But right, the people that were on the roof, although they did say that the very last person they were able to get up the ladder was unconscious. It was an unconscious girl with smoldering hair who had to be dragged up the ladder. And I added that because I thought that was such a like movie moment to think of like that last person you're able to save is like hanging on there are so many movie moments so for instance when the firefighters do arrive uh so they arrive and they can see the mostly women with their faces pressed up against the glass yeah which is a devastating thing um to see like it's it's a very like scary image there's just fire everywhere and they get out their ladders to rescue them, but they realize that their ladders aren't tall enough. They don't reach the ninth mm. floor. So just... Did they not have that giant like trampoline thing back then? Well, they didn't have a trampoline. They did have a net. So yeah. at this point, but here's what happened with that. So at this point, there's a lot of looky-loos, right? Yeah, like, of this course. This is right next to like Washington Square Park. People are watching what's going on and they are watching people jump to their deaths. Like, yes. they're, they're, and you know, they're describing the sound of bodies hitting the pavement. Oh, I know. I was reading someone's account where it was quoted and it was absolutely like bone chilling to read. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there also, you know, people were jumping and landing on the fire hoses, which made them difficult to use. Like you couldn't use the fire hoses because they were being compressed by bodies. bodies. And what happened with the net, so they tried to set up a net to catch people, um, but three women jumped at the same time (gasps) and broke the net. Oh my God, no. Yeah, so it it is horrific. There was a New York Socialist State Assemblyman named Louis Waldman uh, who was there at the scene and he would later describe it saying, occasionally a girl who had hesitated too long was licked by pursuing flames and screaming with clothing and hair ablaze, plunged like a living torch to the street. Life nets held by the firemen were torn by the impact of falling bodies. The emotions of the crowd were indescribable. Women were hysterical, scores fainted, men wept. In proxiums of frenzy, they hurled themselves against the police lines. So people were feeling helpless. They were yeah. like, we're watching one of the most horrific things And you we've can't ever turn seen. away but because you want to help, but you can't do anything. So you end up just watching. Right. And the whole thing lasted 18 minutes. 18 minutes. It's, That's it. It was over. It is absolutely horrible. And what was left was like a literal water soaked pile of 30 or more bodies on the green street sidewalk and doctors had to paw through the heap to look for any signs of life. Officers filled coffins and loaded them into patrol cars and ambulances. Firefighters went back to the ash building, hoping to find survivors. But what they saw, according to chief Edward Croker was bodies burned to bare bones, skeletons bending over sewing machines. It's uh, gen- like I have chills. Like it's mm. so genuinely upsetting because so many of the bodies were burned beyond recognition. Yeah. And they had to be identified by what remained of their belongings or their clothing, like the clothing that they were, they were wearing. Mm. Um, one mother was only able to identify her daughter based on the stitching on her stockings. Oh, my like that's how she knew. Goodness. Um, I wonder, would they do dental records back then? You know, I don't know, probably, but it, I think in order to be time efficient, they did. I mean, something yes, that would be truly horrific, like horrifying, though. Um, I understand why they did it completely. They were trying they to, had identify to identify yeah. people as quickly as possible, but they laid out all of these charred bodies, basically like 
next to each other, shoulder Mm. to shoulder, and thousands of people showed up to look at all of the bodies to try and identify their loved ones. I mean, I get it. In a day and age when there's really no better way to do it, like that makes sense because, yes, if you're going to do dental records, there's so many dead. It would take so long yeah and and that's not going to be sufficient for these people who have lost loved ones you yeah. know so there remained um a handful i think like six who were unidentified and the city was like okay we're gonna have a we will like host a memorial service not only for the lives lost but also for these six like y- you know well they were lives lost but right but the ones that we don't know who they are mm-hmm. And the workers union was like, the fuck you will. The workers union was like, this is on you. Like this blood is on your hands to the city because they were like, we have tried. We have tried to use our voices to tell you over and over again. And this is what fucking happened. Yeah, that these like, these working conditions were so unsafe that people were going to die. Yeah. And so on April 5th, the union managed to like make enough money to organize a funeral procession for the victims and 400,000 mourners gathered to pay their respects. Wow. Just absolutely wild. And this was partly due to the uprising of the 20,000. Yeah. That was in, people's recent memories yeah they remembered already there and this was like yeah this is what we were fighting for right and they admired these women they thought that they were like so tenacious and strong and like look at what they're doing and then for this to happen immediately afterward was people were angry pissed yeah Yeah. and there was so much public outrage and so much of it was geared toward harris and blank as well and the pair were eventually charged with manslaughter two weeks after the fire Thank goodness. Yeah, but they were charged with that basically because so many of the workers were like, we're telling you those doors were locked. Yeah. And that's basically what got the the charge. Well, and I was gonna that was the whole trial. I did take a little a few notes on the trial because it was the whole thing was like whether or not the doors were locked and then whether or not like they had to decide if they were guilty or not guilty with the terms of whether or not they knew the doors were locked. And the jury decided that Blank and Harris did know the doors were locked. They couldn't claim ignorance on that. So that was why. Well, but they, were they acquitted them, though. Uh, so did they? Yes. They, oh, they, they were, were charged, acquitted. but they were acquitted. You're yeah. right. So um, they had enough evidence to bring them to trial because they had all of those testimonies, yes, yes, right? Yes. And Blank and Harris, immediately after the fire, were saying that their building had just been declared, quote, fireproof by yeah. the Department of Buildings. So they don't know how this could have happened. Just yeah, you're, fucking assholes. You're right, because there was one juror that. Though it was proven that the door was locked, they said it couldn't be proven that they knew the door was locked. So that's what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then there was also the they could afford the best defense attorneys, right? Like, so oh, one hundred percent. They're like the Donald Trumps of their time. They paid for the best defense attorneys, and these defense attorneys put one um, jury witness who had been working at the Triangle Shirt Factory. Kate Alterman, they Mm -hmm. put her on the stand and they asked her over and over and over and her story never changed. Like it was very like consistent. Yeah. And 
I think that they were expecting her story to change. And when it didn't change, they changed their tactic. And they said her story is so consistent that she must be coached. Yeah. She must have like, like learned it and memorized it to recite it. Yeah. They've all been memorizing their statements. Right. And so in the end, the jurors said that there wasn't proof that blank and Harris knew that the door was locked. However, I think it's pretty, I think we can pretty safely assume I don't know that there's any proof of this, but they've been paying off city officials and people for all kinds of reasons. Well, and there was there was discussion that they purposefully wanted the doors to be locked because they didn't want the women to steal. Right. And so like there is proof that they were aware that that was something they wanted to do. Right. But all of like it was the word of a bunch of immigrant factory workers against these two like businessmen, you know, and I don't think that these are people who are morally above having paid the jury or the judge or anybody. Not one bit. Right, that Not they need to, yeah. to, like, to have gotten off on that. And it is especially disgusting because they were there that day. And, and got it free. very easily could have been them or their children. Yep. And bare minimum, they saw firsthand what their direct actions or yeah. inaction rather caused. Yeah. And like, I just the it's soulless human beings kind right of there monster like yeah how could you live with yourself how do you not go home at night every night just hearing the screams of these people and like because they their tell bodies. themselves other stories and it doesn't make any sense to me uh, but when they left the courthouse blank and Harris were met with jeers as the crowd chanted for justice so the people that were waiting outside the courthouse were not happy with this verdict. <laughs> they were not happy. But if yeah. you want to get really upset, um, while they were acquitted of the manslaughter charge, they were found liable of wrongful death during the subsequent civil suit in 1913. Yeah. And they had to award the families of those who had died $75 per deceased victim. However, uh, the insurance company paid Blank and Harris about $60,000 more than the reported losses or about $400 per casualty. So they Yo! made money. They made money. I didn't read that. Yes. So they paid out $75 they per victim. They paid $75 when they were given 400 And they were given $400 per victim for like an equivalency. They I hope money. they are. If hell exists, I hope they're burning in it. Yeah, and I don't. I I don't think that they're. Or was, they come back as a cockroach or something. Yeah. What absolute pieces of shit! Uh, it's truly and like they. Ugh. It's not even like after this situation. Obviously, they. It's not like they like went on and they like. Oh, I've changed. I've grown. I'm. I'm going to become a philanthropist no. and like, donate all my money. Like they continued to provide unsafe working conditions in their remaining factories. Blank was fined twenty dollars in the years after the Triangle Fire for locking one of the doors he to his factory. Fined twenty dollars. Twenty dollars, and the judge apologized to him for the inconvenience. Can you? <laughs> <sighs> oh my god <laughs> I don't it sounds like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial to me it, right it there sounds I mean like, like just listen this is why when I get like really like heated about like billionaires and like tax the rich eat yeah. the rich etc cetera, etc cetera, this is why because I really truly feel like you know there's that book snakes and suits which is basically about like corporate sociopathy or like you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, psychopaths that exist within 
Fortune 500 companies and at the top of these like big businesses because for I really do feel like not every single person who like does well in business is a psychopath or a sociopath. However, but it does I feel like invite a certain type absolutely. of person? I feel you know like I mean? if you're fucking Gordon Gecko from Wall Street and you're like greed is good, greed is above everything. I'm yeah. going to get mine. I'm going to climb on top of whoever I need to climb on top you're of. You're going to get into one of those more like soul-sucking corporate jobs or people like you and I are not going to be drawn to something like that. You right. Know? And if we are because it's what our skill set is, like I I feel like I'm and maybe I'm like tooting my own horn, but I do genuinely feel like I am too empathetic to step on anybody which you have to kind of do yeah yeah like to get ahead in this way yeah and at the end of the day even after this horrific thing has happened that should weigh on your soul for the rest of your life and by the way blank and harris were jewish immigrants like their pasts were not like divergent from the pasts of these women No, and most of their employees were jewish immigrants as well right exactly and so i just it's so it it I don't know. It does something to my brain in a way that like for you to continue to go on and say like, um, I'm going to keep locking the doors in my factory because I need to make money. Yeah, it's it's ego and it is a lack of empathy. I think that's the only way that you can really put it into simplistic terms. You know what I mean? These people don't have the same priorities as you and I do. And I feel like it's an important lesson for all of us, like the people who cape for billionaires I will never understand. Like they are not your people and Uh they don't need you to defend them. The people who defend Elon Musk, whenever he has become now a trillionaire. Yeah. And he keeps trolling Bernie Sanders and he keeps trolling, like, you know, basically saying, oh, sure, I'll end world hunger if you'll just tell me exactly how all the money will be spent because he knows (sighs) that he's not going to have to do it and he won't do it. And like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I fuck Elon Musk. I hate that dude. No, he's terrible. And like people defend him and all, all billionaires like these people get defended by everyday people when I just want to shake them and say like they don't you, give a shit about you. They don't care about you. And you have more in common with somebody who doesn't have a home who's living on the street right now than you do with a with billionaire. Elon Musk. 100%. You are so much closer to homelessness. I'm sorry. Like. No, I could go I know. on about this because it makes me so furious. I am there with you, girl. <laughs> so the community was outraged, which led to the creation of a nine-member factory investigating commission, which undertook thorough investigations of safety and working conditions in New York's factories. The commission's reports helped modernize the state's labor laws, making New York State one of the most progressive states in terms of labor reform at the time. In the period of 1911 to 1914, 36 new laws reforming the state labor code were enacted. And these new laws mandated better building access and exits, fireproofing requirements, availability to fire extinguishers, installment of alarm systems and automatic sprinklers, better eating and bathroom facilities for workers, and limited number of hours that women and children could work, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> well, just yeah. women and children, and also children shouldn't be working. Well, the, exactly, it. but the fact that they and that was why it was so weird that they put women and children together. Because I'm like, what women? Are you clumping them in the same category as yes. children? Then, which that's what it sounds like. It's like, to me. thank you for the <laughs> for the improved hours, but also, but like, I, you're I always giving feel it like to that. me because you're treating me like a child. Okay, yes. Oh, yeah. I yeah. genuinely 
Yes, of course. The fairer sex, the weaker sex. Like, I genuinely believe that that is what that is. Um, So, yeah, I mean, look, this is one of the most horrific tragedies to, like, read about and learn about. And if you watch some of those documentaries, just trigger warning that, like, they do show stuff, like, you know, and it is obviously devastating and it's infuriating in so many ways and it's incredibly upsetting yeah that this is what it took uh in order for these laws to be put into place however if we want to try and find a silver lining it is that it did kickstart people really understanding that like no 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 like this is unacceptable this is the this is a big reason why we have so much of the labor protections that we do have in this country and the fact that it was such a female-led movement is something that's really unbelievable so a lot of uh these laws and things are partially to thank for people like rose rosenfeld that we mentioned who attended labor rallies for literally the rest of her life in a pbs docuseries called the living century she reflected on the fire saying that's the whole trouble of this fire nobody cares nobody 146 people in a half hour i always have tears in my eyes when i think It should never have happened. The executives with a couple of steps could have opened the door, but they thought they were better than the working people. It's not fair because material money is more important here than everything. And, you know, I think that that right now to have that conversation, not just with the fact that there's there is a real movement right now that is happening with workers in this country. There's a lot of strikes that have been happening recently. You know, we did, we mentioned IATSE. Um, there's a lot of strikes happening within like car manufacturers um, and companies because people are realizing that they have more power than they think they have. Yeah. But I think the other part of that is we as a country, we as a society need to get beyond this idea that property or monetary goods, goods. Yeah. Are more important than people. Yeah. Because we were just discussing this with Kyle Rittenhouse and basically the entire basis of his defense, you know, outside of them claiming that it was self-defense, but outside of that, the fact we're supposed to feel okay because he went to Kenosha to protect property. Yeah. And we're supposed to feel okay that cops beat Black Lives Matter activists because they're protecting property. The buildings and the statues and the property. People yeah. are more important than property. They're yeah. more important than profit. And they should be. And we and the only And they way, should be worth more than seventy five dollars, but whatever. The only <laughs> way to get around that is is to dismantle capitalism. And I don't just mean capitalism as a system, I mean capitalism as it functions internally for you. Right. Because like Well it, and bring and it's it means specifically bringing up these individual issues when you're seeing a problem. It's it's taking that initiative upon yourself and with other groups around you to be able to use your voice to stand up against you know, the people that you are working for and so on and so forth. And it may seem like it's just you or just your work or whatever, but it can become something that's such a huge movement because of it. Right. Yeah. So don't forget your power. I think that that's something that is so important. Like everyone is going to try and make you feel powerless because you're not Elon Musk and you're not Jeff Bezos and you, you know, can't make a penis rocket ship and go to space for funsies. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, but we are what makes this, world go yeah like the people are what make this world go the workers make this world go yep. and if at any point we realized our power we could 
We could overthrow everything. We could take shit down entirely. And they know that. And that's why they continue to try and make you feel powerless. Yeah. They'll always do that. Or make you feel like you're part of it. Or, you know, it's the same way that, you know, Amazon commercials show that they care. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's a way of kind of like confusing the masses as to how they're actually treating people. It is the the most bizarre thing because I do feel like a lot of right wing people will cape for billionaires in a way I've never seen before. Yeah. And the only... The only reason I can come up with for that is that they have made you believe that that's possible for you. Yep. And you're just one lucky break away from being them and you don't want to you don't want to be criticized. So you're not going to criticize them and you're going to say that they worked hard for it, even though it is physically incapable for (laughs) someone to be to work hard enough to be a trillionaire. Yeah. um, (sighs) So anyway, I did want to point out one last thing um, because I think that it was like kind of a sweet ending here as sweet as it can be the six victims who remained unidentified um they were later identified by historian michael hirsch he completed four years of researching newspaper articles and other sources for missing persons in order like four years of his life dedicated to finding out who these people were that's amazing yeah and so he was able to identify each of them by name those six victims were buried together in the cemetery of the evergreens in brooklyn um they were originally interned elsewhere on the grounds but they then were all moved so that they could be together yeah beneath a monument of a kneeling woman were the families like when was this discovered? Uh, I believe it was like I didn't write the year down, but I mean it was a long time after. I think it was like the nineties or the two thousands. Like oh, so like the families weren't able to be like told that. It no, was I don't oh, think so. Like imagine. maybe maybe descendants probably. Yeah, um, or if somebody was living, they were probably elderly. Wow. You know. Wow! 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 Uh, but. Yeah, I do have a not so fun fact that showed up in one of my articles. I just thought this was such a crazy coincidence. So I want to mention it. 79 years to the day after the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, another fire occurred in New York City. The blaze happened at the Happy Land Social Club in the Bronx and it killed 87 people, making it the most deadly fire in the city since 1911. Wow. 79 years later to the Day. And it's st- oh to the day to Ooh. the day. Ooh, I know that's why I added it because it was like and it was the next most deadly fire since the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. That blew my mind and gave me chills when I read that. So I had to add that in there. Ooh wee! Wow, man. I really hope. Also, I realize that I say man a lot. Just know that We're, it's not a gendered thing. It's no. just an oh man. <laughs> oh, it's like oh geez, you know. Uh, but <laughs> it is a habit I am trying to break myself of. I'm trying to break myself of all gendered language, but it's very difficult it's for me. Super fucking hard for old people like us. We're doing our best. <laughs> yeah, it, it is hard for me. But uh, this one was one that really got to me, and I hope that we made it clear how this issue. Um, is a feminist issue, not just because it was women, not just because it was women who were political and politically active, uh, but also because classist issues are are feminist issues. Yeah. Like, period. Like, you have to care about this stuff um, because everything is politics. <laughs> the personal is political. Put it on a shirt. That's right. 
All right. Well, if you have any topics in the future that you would love for us to cover, you know what to do. You can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us at angry neighborhood feminist. We also have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. Last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, we would greatly appreciate it if you would go to your Apple podcast app, leave us a five star review and a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It's the best way for you to help us and we truly do appreciate it so and much thank you to all the people who have done that recently we've been getting so many yeah. recently and they are all so unbelievably heartfelt and kind made me and cry wonderful. legitimately the yes. last two like made me well up. I, I i said during the mini episode my mental health is a real <laughs> roller coaster lately guys just keep so. Y'all keep sending Keegan like <laughs> happy stuff. You're gonna be like making her day. But yes, yeah, so, like the very, very, very sweet of you all. So if you haven't done that already, it truly is the best way that you can show your love and support for us and for the show. Uh, and we just really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. All right, so I'll be happy today with all that being said. We encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey Jenny, have you um ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Ho, 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 ho. Your search is at an <laughs> end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.